Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 158. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to talk about Cruella. I am so excited to finally sit and talk about this movie. I've been excited to sit and talk about it since we saw it in the theaters. Me too. All right, so for those of you who are new to Monoreal Radio, welcome. We are so happy to have you here. Spoilers. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. If you have not seen this movie yet, because as of the time of this recording, it was just recently released on Disney Plus, sans the premiere access, we are going to spoil the whole movie because we're going to give you the plot, and we're going to dissect it. So, if you have not seen Cruella yet, perhaps make yourself a nice bowl of popcorn, get yourself a nice cold drink, watch the movie, and then come back and listen to our review of this film. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. We meet a young Estella, a rebellious young girl with a mean streak and an eye for fashion. We also learn that her alter ego is a nasty young girl named Cruella. Upon being expelled from primary school, she and her mother head out of the countryside and into London. First, before they get there, though, they have to stop at Hellman Hall, where her mother says she is asking a friend for help in regards to getting them on their feet and getting them started. Estella is told to stay in the car, but upon seeing all of the lovely gowns at the party being thrown at the hall, she and her dog buddy go inside, but are found. Three Dalmatians are sicked on them, and she watches in horror as the dogs knock her mother off of a cliff. As Estella runs off, she drops her mother's necklace that she was meant to safeguard. She makes it to Regent's Park in London, where she meets Horace and Jasper, petty thieves who take her in and teach her how to steal. As they grow up, Estella would learn how to design their disguises, but she has always dreamt of more. As a birthday gift, Jasper got her an entry-level job at Liberty of London, one of the highest-end department stores in the city. She ends up working as a maid, but as she tries to move up in the store and do more in her job, her boss keeps shooting her down. One night, she gets drunk on his brandy and decides to redecorate the store's front window, displaying the latest and greatest from the Baroness a fashion designer who Estella idolizes. Upon finding her passed out in the window, she is fired, but the Baroness arrives, loves the display, and hires her to start working for her immediately. And almost as immediately as she starts working for her, she becomes the Baroness's right-hand woman and befriends a store owner named Artie who shares the same enthusiasm for fashion 
as her. One day, Estella sees the Baroness wearing her mother's necklace, and she tells Estella that it was stolen by a former employee who tried to shake her down at her winter ball. She, Horace, and Jasper plan to steal the necklace back at her black and white ball, because now she's out for revenge. She plans to act as a distraction while Horace and Jasper bypass the Baroness's security and steals the necklace. Fearing she would be recognized, Estella says she can't go to the ball, but Cruella can, and out comes her alter ego. She makes an incredible entrance, but their plan falls apart and chaos ensues at the party. Estella also realizes that the Baroness is responsible for her, uh, for her mother's death, so she steals the Dalmatians as well as the necklace as a means of getting back to her. Well, one of the Dalmatians swallowed the necklace. That's how she became in uh, possession of all of them. Now she is Cruella, and she approaches Anita Darling, who is now working as a gossip columnist. They did go to school together. We saw that in the beginning of the film. And she convinces her to help give Cruella plenty of attention as she works towards starting a label to compete with the Baroness. She starts crashing all of the fashion events in London and successfully upstages the Baroness time after time. Back at work, the Baroness steals Estella's secret dress design to use as the signature piece for her spring collection. She also fires her attorney, Roger, and approaches Anita for answers about Cruella because every time Anita is there taking pictures, Cruella always seems to arrive and Anita always has the scoop. Estella spends the night sewing gold beads onto her dress that she had designed, but the Baroness gives her no credit for creating the outfit, although she tells Estella that she has the talent to create her own label, but questions if she has the killer instincts to go through with it. At the launch party for the spring collection, it turns out that the gold beads sewn onto the gown were moth pods, and when they hatched, they ate the entire spring collection. And then they flew out into the crowd. So as people fled the event, they unknowingly walked into Cruella's launch party. That night, the Baroness follows them back to their hideout and tells them that she is going to kill Cruella and frame Horace and Jasper for her murder. She sets the building on fire and leaves Cruella for dead, which is also what the media is reporting. Cruella is, however, rescued by John, the Baroness's valet, who not only shows her that the necklace is a key that opens a box that exposes the truth that the Baroness is Cruella's birth mother and that Cruella is also the heir to her father's fortune. So she would have possession of Hellman Hall. Cruella breaks Horace and Jasper out of jail and tells them the truth about her life and apologizes for how she has treated them, so they plan on taking down the Baroness together. They send outfits to all of the guests invited to the Baroness's uh, winter ball, dressing all of them just like Cruella so she can easily blend in. And the whole ruse is that this is done as a tribute to the perished Cruella. Dressed as Estella, she draws the Baroness outside and tells her the truth and that she knows what the truth is. John, Artie, Horace, and Jasper, meanwhile, usher all of the party guests outside where they witness the Baroness throw Estella off the same cliff that her mother was thrown from. We learn that Estella willed her fortune to Cruella de Vil and that she wore a parachute that night 
to save herself. And that is where the story of Estella ends and the story of Cruella begins. There is so much going on in the two hours and 15 minutes that this movie runs for. Seriously, that is the longest and most detailed plot you have ever done. But I think that that's a good jumping off point because admittedly, when I first saw the trailer, and I think this was kind of the majority reaction to it, everybody was thinking Devil Wears Prada. For me, it was Devil Wears Prada meets Wicked, directed by Tim Burton. And it is everything but. The the trailer, and I remember for every trailer that came out, I got more and more and more excited for this. The trailers are nothing, in my observation, and I think that's similar to yours, nothing like what this movie actually turns out to be. But I think that's actually a good thing. I think because the soundtrack is so rich here. I think it was definitely focused on looking like a flashy music video and they did a great job of that. But I wish that they had revealed that there is so much more to the story here uh, because this goes a lot deeper than a Maleficent, for example. Right. So with that being said, I'm going to try not to compare it to Wicked too much, but there are some very obvious parallels starting with they open with the birth scene and when they did that I thought it was a direct ripoff of Wicked but they really do pay it off they do pay it off when we eventually find out that the Baroness is her mother because all we see I, I can't believe I'm I'm about to use these words on a show in which we discuss Disney films all you see is legs spread <laughs> and um, you hear a woman in labor and out comes the child. But it's a CGI baby, though. Like, oh. I'm just going to put this out here now. I've said it before and I will say it again. The bugaboo with a lot of Disney movies is when they get the CGI wrong. It's really, really lousy. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry, but I've never seen a CGI baby. I've always seen like an actual baby. They're not hard to come by. Uh, <laughs> usually they would get an actual child, not something you drew on a computer. And it's like, it's the first image you see after the castle. So it's a little jarring to start the movie off. Right. Especially because you hear the screams of labor. Another way to say you just see a woman with her legs spread is that they're very careful not to show her face, which right. you don't realize until your second or third viewing. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And it's very funny because the CGI baby is just as bad as it is in Wicked when they pull out the green, like, rubber doll in the beginning of the show. So, again, obvious parallel. But, um, you know, and then you get the horrified reaction because in this case, uh, Cruella is born, or Estella is born with the two-tone hair. I actually really like that. I think that 
it sets up the character arc perfectly because you know that she's going to stand out in school. You know that she's going to get bullied. But I love how we see her embrace this. And it totally lends itself to this punk rock vibe that the entire movie's got between the clothes and the fashion choices. Uh, Estella just has an aesthetic from the jump. She's got an aesthetic from the jump. The punk rock London thing is perfect because I remember when we saw the initial screen grab of uh, Emma Stone with the Dalmatians and Horace and Jasper, she looked a little steampunky. Um, and I wasn't sure that it was going to work. I went back and forth on it. There were days I'm like, oh my God, she looks great. And then other days I went, oh, this, I don't know about this. But it's not, it's not that at all. I think they just picked kind of a, I, I, it was kind of a weird screen grab to use as your first promotional piece. I'm okay if she dips her toe in the water of steampunk, but the overall aesthetic is really punk rock. And that, definitely worked what I also love is how they lean into the idea of this split personality that she's got it's not like Maleficent or like Wicked where you see our main character just go through the school of hard knocks and decide one day that they're tired of trying to do the right thing when the world keeps kicking them and embraces the evil. This is something that she actually struggles with throughout the entire film, starting with, and I love that she embraces it too, because otherwise she'd come off as a super bratty kid. She says, I wasn't challenging my mother. I was challenging the world. So I love that she owns it out of the gate. I love that she owned it out of the gate. I loved the whole crew Ella thing where there in when you first see her referred to as Cruella, she and her mother are making clothes for a doll, and she does not follow the pattern. Just like Cruella is never going to follow the pattern, she's always going to take the load the road less traveled, right? And she's always going to be creative and be sort of avant garde in that aspect, and that's what she does with this doll's clothing. And her mother calls her on it and goes, "No." That looks stupid. And she goes, that's harsh. Your name's Estella, not Cruella. I love that it. you get it planted there. But what I like even more is as she gets older through adolescence, they start addressing it as if it is her alter ego, as, it, as if it is her split personality, where every time she wants to misbehave, her mother says, now when Cruella wants to come out, what are you going to tell her? I, I really buy this and I love that this is how they planted this name for this character I definitely agree but to me there's more layers here than just the name upon first viewing you know I'm thinking okay this single mother is struggling with raising a very rebellious daughter and she's trying to keep her in line, but she's not trying to crush her creativity either because she recognizes that given the way that Cruella, Cruella's hair looks, I keep saying Cruella at this point is it is still Estella. Yeah. Given how Estella's hair looks, she knows that she's not going to have an easy life ahead of her. So she's trying to embrace her differences and what makes her unique and foster that creativity. 
But now that you know what happens, it's more than just trying to keep her on the straight and narrow. It's because she knows who her mother is and her mother's a raging psychopath. So she really try is trying to keep Cruella at bay. Right, because she has seen the other side of the Baroness. Exactly. And she doesn't want Estella going down this road. I like that we get her in school. I like the fact that she stands up for herself in school when the boys are picking on her, which, you know, for 1964, that's the year that this particular scene is taking place. That's kind of, um, I'm not going to say it's unheard of, but the but the girls standing up to the boys, and, and not just standing up for it, but fighting them back and besting them is something that I think was so unique and so empowering for that time period. Definitely. I also like that this is where we get the Anita plan. Exactly. Because if, if, what we know about the relationship that Cruella and Anita have from 101 Dalmatians was that they just went to school together. And we never really knew what that meant. And we kind of wondered, like, what is it about Cruella that Anita would be drawn to? Now, in this case, I think it answers the question that Anita herself was also kind of an outsider. She's going to be picked on by the boys. We see it in the dodgeball scene. And here comes somebody that is completely brave and will stand up for the underdog much like herself. It makes sense that she would be so drawn to Estella because Estella really was her only ally. I couldn't agree with you more. That was always something that didn't jive with me in 101 Dalmatians. They said that they're schoolmates. Roger says it when Cruella pulls up. Right. And I guess I always just kind of assumed they went to design school together. But in the animation, there definitely seems to be an age gap. And I never really bought it. And they try to cover it up in the live action 101 Dalmatians with Glenn Close. And there's still an age gap. So I still never buy it here. They completely righted the wrong. And I absolutely love that they planted Anita so early because, again, this is something that pays off so much later on in this film. What this movie successfully does early And I'm not going to say it does it for the entire film because by the time we get to the end, I am going to bring up what is, to me, kind of the biggest burning question and and, and the thing that I didn't like about how they ended this film. But one of the things that they do really well that some of the other live-action remakes have not done quite as well is that they have gone and answered the questions that we have had. Why did this happen? Why is this character drawn to this person? Why is this character behaving this way? Where did a name like Cruella DeVille, where did Cruel Devil come from, right? So they do such a good job and they are so careful and they're so tasteful, I think, with how they put it all together. And it just... Within the first 10 minutes of the movie, it's just check, 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 check. You're checking boxes that we had. And we love 101 Dalmatians. We do. But it checks so many boxes right away that I'm I'm thinking we are in for a treat early on. 
it's a super strong start and they lay a very solid foundation for the rest of the film here, as well as, like you said, filling in some of those plot holes. Um, I think that's especially apparent when she gets picked on by the boys at school. She ends up getting thrown in a dumpster and she finds a puppy. That was the moment I knew that there was so much more than meets the eye and they were going to do the wicked type of thing of this is the story that you don't know. And everything that we thought we knew about Cruella was going to get flipped on its head from here on out. Well, this is what I liked about this. And this is what I liked about Maleficent as well. These are not characters that are evil for the sake of evil. These are characters that are complex. They do have a lot of depth. And I like that we're going to see what eventually push them to become exactly what they do become in the classic animated versions. I know that when it came to Maleficent, you had some issues with, so this whole thing is over a boy. I was very critical of that. So I'm curious to see, obviously this is not over a boy, but I'm curious to see where this movie ranks for you in regards to these live-action remakes slash origin stories. Because I think what we can agree on, movies like this and Maleficent, to me, are not in the same category as The Lion King, The Jungle Book, Cinderella, Lady and the Tramp, Aladdin. This isn't a live-action remake. It's an origin story. It's an origin story. And I wish, honestly, and I know I'm going a little bit off topic here, but... I think what I would like to see them do, because I've said I'm getting a little tired of just seeing live action remakes because now you're doing them just to do them. This is what I want to see. I want to see more of these origin stories. I want to see how Jafar became the way he was. I know they kind of addressed it a little bit in the Aladdin live action. First off, recast him and then go out and like really show me how he became the way that he became, you know, the witch from Snow White. Like I want to see more of that kind of thing because the, these Disney villains are just so like you're entranced by them. Ursula, you know what I'm saying? Like you just become so obsessed with them and they're so deep. I want to see more of this. Well, really, any time we've done a review of a classic animation, we spend so much time talking about the villains because we love these Disney villains that are done with so much panache and maybe not as much complexity in the animations as we're seeing now, but I'm all for it. I would personally, rather than remake another animated film, keep going with the origin stories. I totally agree. Jafar's one of my favorites. I would love to see something like that. Remy Malek, please. Uh, and Captain Hook as Russell Brand. I could be down with all of those things. All right. Getting back onto our topic here. But I did I did want to bring that up that I think we do have to categorize these as two different genres with these live action movies. I agree. And to touch on what you said so far by this point in the film, Cruella's got a lot more pushing her buttons to become evil than Maleficent did. Sure. Maleficent was a fairy. She lived in a beautiful land. I mean, okay, she was orphaned, so that's not easy. But so is Cruella. I mean, they did cut her wings off. I mean... You know, it, but, but I get what you're saying. There's obviously a lot, what, well, what happens next? You could make the case 
is worse for Cruella than it was for Maleficent. Okay. What I do want to say that I actually really like, and I was very critical of this when we just talked about Artemis Fowl a couple of years ago. Uh, a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. A couple of months ago. I wish it was a couple of years. <laughs> it was a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't months. It wasn't years. It was weeks. It was. It was but weeks. I wish it was months and years. <laughs> um, I was very critical of the voiceover and how they used... Um, Josh Gad's character, uh, Diggums or whatever to unfold the plot. There's a lot of voiceover here, but I think it works even though it's extended almost all through the first act of the movie. And it does keep coming back in and out throughout it's peppered in through the rest of the film, but I so think it works. And I think that Emma Stone nailed the delivery of these lines. She did. And there's there's the line where when we see the necklace for the first time, she goes, oh, that necklace is the reason why I'm dead. But more on that later. It just makes it so intriguing. And I think the other thing where this works favorably, whereas it was not working in Artemis Fowl, you're not cutting to a sit down with Emma Stone. Yes. It's her kind of weaving in and out of the story when it happens in Artemis Fowl, you'll be in the middle of a scene and all of a sudden, Josh Gad's breaking the fourth wall. Exactly. So I like the fact that they didn't do that here. You mentioned the necklace and you just triggered one of my fears upon first viewing. To me, the animated Cruella has always looked like a corpse come to life because she's so gangly and she's got the green makeup. I think I called her the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, probably you did. That sounds about right. Uh so when she says that, this is the story of how I died, I was like, oh, no. I really <laughs> thought this was going to a horrible Wouldn't place. What you think this was going to become The Walking Dead? I don't know. Maybe. Um, I mean, have you seen what they did with some of these movies and how bad some of these are? I've seen it. I've seen it. All right. Okay, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about something that I, I think was bad. Really bad. Okay. We get the scene now she's expelled from school she and her mother go off to Hellman Hall and she is a witness to her mother's death the visual of three Dalmatians running up to a human being who stands there like a mannequin and doesn't flinch and knocks her off a cliff is as ridiculous as I am making it sound to the point where it happened and we're in the movie theater and I didn't utter, I didn't whisper, I yelled an obscenity out loud because I was so taken aback by how stupid, and I'm sorry to use that word, how stupid the visual looked. Yeah, this was the point between the comment about this is how I died and then this, first of all, you've got CGI dogs for all of them, for Buddy, for the Dalmatian. Oh. And I was like, why? This is the Dalmatians movie. It's the prequel to Dalmatians. Are you kidding? And you CGI them. The CGI was probably better in the Glenn Close version on some of these puppies. Well, they also used real animal actors in that movie. It was a combination of both. But the CGI was pretty bad. And I'm not saying it's much better here. But between... The the this is the story of my death, and then seeing these horrible CGI Dalmatians knock the mother over, I had the biggest pit in my stomach 
that they had blown all of the good scenes in the trailer yep. and that this was going to be Maleficent 2 bad. Because I hate Maleficent 2. That movie is horrendous. This, when this happened, I went from the highest of highs yes. to the lowest of lows. Because before, when she crashes the party... It's amazing. It's such a fun scene. She's swinging from the chandelier like Sia. Like, really like Sia, because she's got the two-tone hair working for her. Right. Um, and it's just such a fun visual. And I just had such a horrible sinking feeling. But it definitely recovers itself. I'm not even saying that, that the dogs pushing her over a cliff are far-fetched. Because Walt can knock me over easily. Yeah, while he sits here and throws his ball around. Um, yeah, normally we try and edit this stuff out, but since this is a dog-centric episode, we're just going to let him play. We're going to let him make his cameo. Um, yeah, it's um, th- the visual's ridiculous, but it also doesn't help the fact that if, like, if you know anything about dogs, Dalmatians are not vicious. I And every time you see them... They're snarling and they're growling and they're drooling. And that's just not what the characteristic of a Dalmatian is. I have a theory about that. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. It's because if you teach a dog love, it will love. That's why I've never invested anything in this pit bull bully breed that they get horribly stereotyped with. These dogs have a psychopath owner. She doesn't show them love. I doubt that she really takes care of them i mean these are really like her bloodhounds and she sicks them on people so i think that they are unhappy dogs because as soon as they are with estella and jasper and horace they completely turn right then they watch their soccer games and they love it with horace um but yeah i mean look the the thing is and i said this actually when we did our monoreal in the minute you have to get past this moment. You have to get past this visual. If you can't, it does ruin the movie because it is just so ridiculous to see. If you can get past it, the movie does. You know, tenfold, it redeems itself. The thing that I think I dislike most about it, other than the absurdity of it, the mother doesn't flinch. Like, it looks like there's yeah. a frame missing. It looks, you know what it looks like? It looks like they had an animal actor knock a dummy off of a cliff on a set. Right, because she doesn't even, she's supposed to be a deer in headlights, but she doesn't get that wide-eyed, frightened look. Well, and the other, they dash at her from like 200 yards away. And how do you not see them, how do you not see these dogs coming? I mean, I think at this point, you know your goose is cooked, so it doesn't really matter. But even if you know you can't escape, some sort of reaction would have been great here. Um, Regardless, you had to have something truly horrible happen to Cruella. Because what I had said when we reviewed 101 Dalmatians is that to me, Cruella is the worst villain. Because she wants to kill puppies and there's nothing more horrible that you can do in my book. So you knew she had to be completely deranged. And even though it was terribly executed, watching her mother die in such a horrible fashion is the thing that's dark enough to make her 
completely unhinged. I agree. And I think that this would have been enough for me to come to terms with the fact that she's not just evil for evil's sake. She now has it out for Dalmatians. As absurd as the visual was. Did I mention it's absurd? Because it's absurd. But they completely undo all of that. Well, you know what I'm realizing now as we're talking through it? What's the only other path they could have taken to have these dogs truly attack the mother and tear her limb from limb? Yes, that is enough of a reason for Cruella to turn on dogs, but because they have Buddy in this film, you can't have her not trust dogs completely. You still have to have some sort of a redeeming quality. So I think that's why they didn't make it an attack. And if they do, that's that's sort of too dark. That's not the point that we're trying to prove here with a film like this. She wants to turn puppies into a coat. But does she? Well, I mean, in the original film, she does. That's what we're led to believe. I don't want to get too far ahead because that was an issue that we did have upon first viewing. And I think for the people who are not a fan of this film, I think that is why is because we never saw her become the puppy killer for lack of a better word. But did you really think Disney was going to show that? No, absolutely not. So I think that from here on out, what we are seeing is, like I said, it's like Wicked. You thought you know what was going on, but there's a lot more behind the scenes that you had no idea about. I'm going to put my I'm going to put a pin in my response to that because that will come when I sort of surmise this whole thing up at the end of the movie here. Um, All right. So now she goes off to London. She hitchhikes. She hides in trucks. She gets to London. She gets to Regent's Park and she meets Horace and Jasper. I actually think this was a really bold move but a really smart move that they were children who grew up together because one of the things you can't figure out, why Horace and Jasper, why do they put up with her, why does she trust them? This answers, again, now we go back to checking off those boxes. I couldn't agree more. I love everything about Horace and Jasper befriending her at an early age. Uh, You know, in the animation... It's something you kind of just take it for what it is that the villain always has a sidekick or henchman. It just is what it is. And you don't really question it. But here, they give it a layer that you don't even necessarily know that you needed. And what I like about it is that I think it speaks to the reality of the time a little bit too. Um, or maybe because it reminds me of Newsies a little bit. Like you have these kids that are down on their luck and they band together, albeit not in the most of honorable ways, but they're taking care of each other. And I think it's a huge part of Cruella's character and what does keep Estella alive in her that she's got this found family. And that's that's the key. It is a family, and she refers to them as such. I love Horace and Jasper in this movie. And Wink. 
and Wink. Let's not forget Wink. Wink. I love that they both have dogs. It truly is a family. Yeah, it's they just pulled it off so very well, answered so many questions. And I think that what they do is they give so much depth to Jasper specifically. Yes. There's kind of an are they or aren't they thing that happens throughout the entire movie. And I'll be honest with you, I actually like it. I, I, like, if you would have told me there's going to be an are they or aren't they before we saw this, I would have said that's ridiculous and unnecessary. It works so well here. Again, I completely agree. And what I love the most about it is that it remains unsaid. I think Jasper does truly have feelings for her. And I think you can just see that in the way that he emotes. Uh, and and his actions do speak very loud, which we're about to get into. Um, but I love that they never answer it. I think that he knows he can never really be with her because he can't... He's in love with Estella, not Cruella, and he knows he can't bring Estella back. Right. And I think that's why he chooses to keep Cruella in his life so that he has her in some capacity. Right. So I like that we don't just have Estella struggling with her identity. You've got Jasper having an internal struggle. It's a really good subplot. Um... So what sort of tips it off that he does have feelings for her is that it's her birthday. They steal her a cake. Poor Judy. <laughs> Poor Judy. Um, stupid Judy. Um, hit us up, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Monorail Radio if you know what ride that's from. And you will have friends for life. Um, so they throw her a birthday and Jasper one ups it by getting Estella her dream job in the fashion industry. What I like here is not the gesture, it, not only the gesture that he's giving to her, um, but also that they recognize that they're not kids anymore. I mean, they have honed their craft. They can steal anything. They're living large because they've got all these, you know, high end clothes and accessories and even though they're stealing they're doing well for themselves but they recognize that that's not going to last forever and I kind of wish that they had acknowledged it that they're not just trying to do the right thing but you're not going to be tried as a juvenile anymore and as an adult the punishment's going to be that much worse so you do kind of have to get your life together at this point you survived as an orphan and this was your means to get by and you helped each other but you got to grow up now right and he says you know she's too talented and she's too good for the likes of us to be running these scams and stealing and i love how horace is like okay what's the angle cuz he's just he's so automatic thinking there's an angle yes. and i that that joke okay how often do I sit here and I say that you have a joke that keeps coming up and coming up and coming up, and when it doesn't land the first time, they keep trying to land it, and it doesn't land, and it doesn't land? This angle thing that happens with Horace through, uh, you know, throughout the movie, when it eventually does pay off, it's as funny the, fir it's, it's funny the last time as it was the first time. It never gets old. Yeah. Um, but I, I love the scene. I love that Jasper does this for her. Um, I love the fact that we're starting to see her get unpacked a little bit more now. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about she gets this job. 
listen, everybody's had a boss that treats them like garbage, right? And she's not in the glamorous job that she wants. I mean, he won't even let her do alterations. And she's extremely talented. The scene where she gets drunk and starts walking and kind of dancing and singing to These Boots by Nancy Sinatra. And she goes and she does that window. This is the moment where you get sold on her, in my opinion. This is that, this is the moment. This is the aha moment in the film where you get sold on Emma Stone as Cruella DeVille. I love every single thing about this scene because you do see that struggle. She landed her dream job. She's happy to be in this place. She's trying to play by the rules and work her way up. And when it doesn't happen as fast as she wants it to, Cruella's going to rebel. So you're right. I think this is the first instance where Estella does start to embrace Cruella as an adult because she wants to get things done. It's not just rebelling for rebelling's sake, like she said when she was a child. She knows what she wants, and she's just going to reach right out and take it. And that's, and to your point, she says that line later in the movie. Estella doesn't get things done. Cruella does when right. she's arguing with Jasper. So it is important that this happens in this scene, and then you get introduced to the Baroness. And it's Emma Thompson. It's her first scene in the movie. It, it, listen, she's she is just brilliance in anything that she does. Um, and in this role in particular, that scene where she completely knocks down this store manager and is sort of excited to hear that he has fired the person that has designed this window because she's going to take her and she's going to utilize her and put her on her own staff. It's just, it's such a good scene. It's a good introduction for another complex character. Absolutely. What I like too is that Estella does recognize her own talent because it's always come off sort of cocky, but now she's got the confidence that she needs. She knows that her work is better than anything they were doing at Liberty, so she's ready to go and work for the Baroness. Um, what I love about her first day of work is that when they do the lineup of all the designs and the Baroness goes through one by one and she takes a liking to Estella's work, but she cuts the sleeves off and she nicks her in the process. This is where the movie completely separated itself from Devil Wears Prada for me. Yeah, because this isn't just a mean executive for the sake of being a mean executive. I mean, she's a borderline tyrant at this point. And psychopath, because in Devil Wears Prada, she used, uh, Meryl Streep used her words. Yeah, she was never going to cut Anne Hathaway with exactly. a knife. Yeah, I, I think that this was an important scene because you are 100% correct. It needed to separate itself from Devil Wears Prada. And up to this point in time, even though you've said it in a completely different time period, it was still bordering on being very much the same movie. Just by virtue of it being a fashion movie, but there's enough now because we've spent time with Cruella during her childhood where you completely forget about the fashion element and 
you're not thinking Devil Wears Prada, but now she's going to work for the big scary executive. So you had to do something to deviate. And I think it's important that she succeeds on her first day. Absolutely. You know, because sometimes you see a character in a film knock it out of the park right away. And it just seems like it's too good to be true. But in this case, I think she needed to show that she was that talented from the start. And and, and for no, and not to keep the pacing of the film up, I think we just needed to see that from basically the moment she walks in the door, even before she walks in the door, she can match the Baroness. I would agree with that because this is sometimes where I go back and forth. Clearly, the Baroness has already taken a liking to the grubby girl, yeah. as she calls her. Yeah. So you kind of assume that Estella is going to get a little bit of special treatment. And she does get knocked down a peg when she literally cuts her open. Um, so you did need to give her sort of a win to prove that she is meant to be there and that the Baroness does favor her, but she's not going to put her up on a pedestal either. Right. I think it's it's all very important for the purpose of fleshing these characters out. Absolutely. The Okay, I want to talk about some character. Well, I mean, we're not going to talk about character just yet, but I want to talk about how we get introduced to some more characters because this is where you do start to meet more and more and more characters, starting with Artie. Okay, so you have Estella go into a secondhand shop and meet Artie, who kind of has that David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust look. He is just so much fun. Art as in work of. It's great. Everything about him from the minute he comes on the screen is just spectacular. I agree, and I love the role that he plays because you do need to give Cruella an ally for when Horace and Jasper start to question their relationship. Well, and she needs an equal. Yes. You know, nothing against Taurus and Jasper. They don't know anything about fashion. The Baroness is an equal in terms of success, but as, as it turns out, you know, none of what the Baroness is doing is really the Baroness anyway. She's using everybody else's design and just picking the ones that she likes the best. We see this throughout the whole film. You needed somebody that could match her charisma and her know-how. He is the perfect means of doing it. Absolutely. Then we also see that Roger is in the movie, and he is the Baroness's attorney. How do you feel about this? I was just going to ask you that. Um, I like that we plant him early on. I like that there is a relationship with Cruella because I think that they pay off on that. Stay after the credits, people. Um, I wish she had played a bigger role because in the animation, she's always ripping on him, right? She doesn't think that a musician is a proper job. Uh, she she kind of treats him like this lame guy and she's always ragging on him. So they do try to make the necessary changes by making him a lawyer. Um, I wouldn't necessarily... Well, no, I think it's safe to say that Cruella ends up respecting him, but I wish that he had played a bigger part in the film the way that Anita did, as opposed to he's just working for the Baroness and 
they have like a mutual understanding of how tough they have it working for her. All right. This is interesting because I am on the complete opposite side of the fence. Really? I do not like that he is in this movie at all. And let me tell you why. It In 101 Dalmatians, he did not care for Cruella DeVille because he had no personal connection to Cruella DeVille other than she was friends with Anita. Now, you can make the case for he doesn't have a relationship with Cruella DeVille. He has a relationship with Estella. But the mid credit scene that we see at the end that we will talk about later on would lead you to believe that, no, in fact, he does have a relationship with Cruella more than just being the thorn in the side of the Baroness. I felt that the reason why he could write the Cruella DeVille song, which in if you listen to the lyrics, they're so punchy and they're kind of mean, but that's what makes him so good. He was able to do that because he doesn't care about Cruella or for Cruella. Remember, that's his wife's friend. Has nothing to do with him. Not even his wife's friend, really. It's an acquaintance, but he knows that Cruella antagonizes Anita. And that's why, you know, he writes her villain song, which maybe doesn't necessarily add up here. Let's put a pin on this because I think this is going to be part of the later conversation that you want to have. For sure. But this doesn't work for me, having him in this role. I feel that his, his sense of humor, his general disposition was better when he really did not connect with her at all. I th- I felt that's what made him such a fun character in 101 Dalmatians. Here, I kind of think they just made him dumb. They absolutely dumbed him down. And it doesn't really... I, the whole, I just don't think the whole thing works. The Roger in this film tripping over himself every time he walks into a room, that's what the animated Cruella is talking about. Right, right. But I mean, look, Jeff Daniels didn't even do that. And Jeff Daniels is known for his physical comedy. Right. So we didn't have Jeff Daniels do it. Why are we doing it now? Fair point. All right. Let's move on here to this black and white gala. Actually, no, I'm going to put a pin in that. I'm going to put a pin in that. I want to talk about where we see the necklace again. Yes. Okay. This is such an important scene because Estella slips when the Baroness says, oh, yeah, this was it's a family heirloom and it was uh, stolen by one of my employees. And she goes, no, she didn't. And she had to check herself. And you get this very elaborate story from the Baroness about how the necklace was stolen from her by a former employee who later showed up and tried to shake her down. And says, and she got herself killed, and she had a kid, and she was. Just, she basically says she was a horrible mother. It's such, it's such a good scene because we don't need to see that the Baroness is just pure evil any more than we already have, but we need to see her unassumingly push Cruella's buttons, not Estella's, Cruella's. 
I really like this entire scene and what they did here. I agree. The only thing that I don't love is that I think it was too much of a slip. I know Estella tries to cover for herself and she's like, oh, it's a tonal delivery, the wrong tonal delivery or whatever it is. Uh, But she doesn't even try to cover and be like, oh, your necklace is so beautiful. She's just so locked into it. We already know this. We're already in Estella's POV here. So I think they could have balanced it out a little bit more because I'm surprised that the Baroness didn't necessarily catch on. Not that they're dropping enough hints, but I guess you could make the argument that the Baroness is so wrapped up in her own world and she wants to take her nine minute power nap and put the cucumbers on her eyes. She probably isn't reading that much into it, but like there were a lot of follow-up questions. Wouldn't she find that a bit odd? I, I mean, I, I think because she has let her guard down to Estella at this point, she's probably not questioning it, which is actually very important character development for her because we know that she's ruthless and she doesn't trust anybody. And the fact that she's willing to let her guard down to Estella, I think it says a lot about how she doesn't completely respect her, but she sees that there is something special about her. And it's so layered, though, because it's not just the grubby girl that she's taken a liking to and starts to trust. It's because she can see herself in her because it's actually her daughter and she doesn't know it yet. What I needed a little bit more of, just a little, was some debate from Estella about risking her dream job for the necklace because this is another big turning point, like you said, where she decides to ditch Estella and Cruella the window display. Now she knows that she wants to take the Baroness down. She's about to fully embrace Cruella. So I think you just needed a little bit more. I mean, obviously she wants revenge because this is about her mother. So no questions asked. She's going to go after her. But I think there could have been a little bit more internal debate as far as, you know, how she keeps going to Regent's Park and talking to her mom, which I love that they keep revisiting and all these big events in her life, meeting Horace and Jasper, the big fashion show. Everything goes back to Regent's Park. I wish there had been a little bit more, you know, struggle with deciding I'm trying to stay on the straight and narrow path, but now I know what really happened to my mother. So I have to avenge her death. I think, yes, if she had more of an internal conflict, and I love the fact, to to echo what you said, that she keeps going to Regent's Park, that this fountain that she and her mother were going to sip tea by, now it's like talking to the fountain is she's talking to her mother. I love that she has sort of empowered the fountain that way. Yes. Um. But I think she needed to snap. So, like, as much as it would have been interesting to see, I don't think we necessarily needed to see. Because we need Cruella. We don't need Estella anymore. We need Cruella. And I don't think we needed anything else to happen to push her over the top. Well, I mean, that's it. You know she's not going to save Estella anymore. Right. But I think just for the sake of the relationship with Horace and Jasper it might have strengthened it a little bit. Like, I need to stay 
good for them. But you're right. It does work as such a snap because it's like no questions asked. Nothing else matters anymore. And I love how when they start scheming, they go into like this. um, It's like an Ocean's Eleven type of plan and how it is shot and edited is so much like the Ocean's Eleven movie, the first Ocean's Eleven movie with George Clooney, which by far is the best of, of the three of them. That I just everything about this just works so well for me. I love the exterminator plan. It's, <laughs> it's so brilliant. It's hysterical. I love how they have everything down to a T. Where they get foiled though, this is again the movie kind of trips over itself. It doesn't do it often, but when it does, it's kind of glaring. Anita is at the party to photograph the Baroness. Right. She's wearing black and white because it's a black and white party. She has a handkerchief. There is a blue stain on the handkerchief. And the Baroness goes off about, you broke the dress code. And she's like, oh, my pen must have leaked. And she goes, no, color. And she throws the handkerchief away. Why is she wearing a red necklace? If you're not supposed to be wearing color, why are you wearing a red necklace? Because she's wearing black and white earrings to go with her black and white outfit. Nobody is meant to wear any sort of color. Why is she wearing a red necklace? Because she has to do something to stand out. It's not enough that it's her party. And they weren't going to make her wear a full red gown because that's what Cruella does. Cruella takes one of her old gowns that she finds in Artie's vintage shop. Yeah. And she wears red as a direct shot across the nose. So I'm actually okay with it because you have to have the necklace in play somewhere. Yeah, I suppose. Um, Cruella's entrance... We saw it play out in the trailer, but it's only it, what what you see in the trailer is just a piece. It's just a sliver. Her entrance and how she fights off all of these guards. I I love how we fought, how we get introduced to Cruella for the first time because now Estella is gone. I agree. At first, it seemed a little far-fetched to me in the trailer, but they do cover the tracks because we've seen her fight as a kid, so we know that she can. And even when they're doing the Ocean's Eleven schematic plan, Horace is playing with pyrotechnics. It's very subtle because he's doing it while they're talking, but it is completely plausible that the outer layer of this dress burns and disintegrates. Totally works. The scene is a lot of fun. The snatching grab with the necklace and Horace falls into the cake and everybody's just, it's just mayhem. It's a lot of fun. And then the room gets brought down when she has that moment where she realizes that the Baroness killed her mother. I love the juxtaposition. I love that moment. I love where, you know, she's Cruella but she's not unhinged yet. You're starting to kind of see how she's starting to become unwound in that moment. Right, and that's the difference where when she first discovers the necklace, she's pissed off that the Baroness is just talking about her mother like she's nothing, and she just totally casts her aside, and 
that's what initially triggers Cruella, but you needed something to make her, and, and you had to go deeper. It had to be worse than that. And this is a little piece of it, I think. I mean, obviously it's horrible to find out that she is responsible for her mother's death and to put all the pieces together, but it's not actually the final knife twist because that's going to come when you find out that the Baroness is her birth mother. For sure. Okay, so the next morning, they wake up. The guys are having their breakfast. Estella doesn't come out. Cruella comes out. And that's the first time that she has basically said, it's time for Estella to go back in the shadows. And and she only becomes Estella at work. And and that's where Jasper's like the the show's up. We it's over. We did what we came to do. What what do you, what do you want? Because she didn't get the necklace. Now she's gonna tell them that they have to go and kidnap the dogs. And this is the first time I said she's starting to become unwound. Here she's almost completely unhinged. And I love that they start questioning how much is too far with her. For sure. This is where they start to become almost antagonists to her because they're struggling with this is more than just being a petty thief and stealing to get by. They know that she's like graduating to the big leagues here. For sure. And I love this double life that she starts to live where she's Estella at work and she's Cruella everywhere else. And this is where it's so brilliant that you had Anita planted so early because now we hook her back in. And it's not just another ally for Cruella. There's personal stake in it too. Number one, because the Baroness has been rude to her. And two, because she's trying to further her own career, she wants to have the hot gossip. So there's just as much personal stake in it as Cruella has. Everything they did when it comes to these appearances and having Cruella team up with Anita was absolutely brilliant because it's not only the schoolmate that defended her, but it's the person that helped her grow her career. It's There's something in it for you. There's something in it for me. And it completely justifies why she puts up with everything she does in 101 Dalmatians. Absolutely. It's excellent. As are... All of these scenes. It's oh my a bit of a montage and it, it leaves you wanting more because now you've got every big event that the Baroness is putting on. Cruella's going to crash it and it just keeps getting bigger with each event. You know, the first time she shows up, she's got the future mask. The second time, and I didn't catch it upon first viewing, when she stands on top of the Baroness, she locks her in her own car. Yes. Stands on top of the car, uncurls her dress, and there's a sign, uh, there's a sash on it that says past. I never caught that the first time around. And then um, the dresses become more elaborate. The garbage truck. How great was the garbage truck? I love it. And it's so arty, too. Yeah. To pull pull that off, because that's when she goes to seek out his help again, and he's the one who sews all those dresses, because I believe they're the ones from the shop. They never say it as much, but Horace and Jasper are literally being dragged along for the ride at this point. He actually already helped her pull off that stunt. 
And this is where Horace and Jasper, you can tell they're kind of having fun with it, too. Because it's not just them having, you know, it's not just them stealing the dogs. They're getting frustrated with how she's treating them. But when it comes to these elaborate uh, events and these elaborate appearances, you could tell they're totally in on it. Here's the only thing that doesn't add up for me. Okay. And maybe this is too much having Devil Wears Prada in my head. Estella is like the chosen one at work. So isn't she missing from all of these events? I'm not saying that the Baroness should have put the two and two together and realized, you know, that Bruce Wayne and Batman are in the same room at the same time. But you haven't noticed that Estella's sort of fallen off at work and now she's not showing up. I mean, that's to assume that she's even invited to these events. Which you would assume she's probably not. Only because, you know, the Baroness, she she trusts her, she likes her, but only this much. You know what I mean? Right. And that's where I'm probably harping on Devil Wears Prada a little bit too much because Annie was her assistant. So she had to be there. Estella is a designer. She doesn't necessarily need to be at these events. Right, because she has an assistant, and she has John, and they're always around. Right. But you're right, Estella, I, I see what you're saying. She never really does put two and two together, but we also know that there was only one time she was ever called out for showing up late. So we don't know if Estella or Cruella... I don't know that she was being necessarily irresponsible or letting things fall through the cracks other than that one instance. But I think you're right. There is a question that could be asked, you know, how is it that she was never included in any of these events? Right, because you are seeing her spend time with the Baroness in her office. She's always at her side at work, not like the other two guys are everywhere else. But in the next couple of scenes, she's not always in the office with her. She is kind of put back in line with everyone else. And I think that's also because she's not designing. She hasn't come through with a win in a while. And that's also in in part due to her focusing so much of her energy on being Cruella. Right. Because when she does create the gown that becomes the centerpiece of the spring collection... She's doing it during her lunch break. And the Baroness sees it because the Baroness is spying on her using security cameras. Let me ask you something about that. Sure. Do you think that was part of the plan the entire time? Or do you think that dress was supposed to be for Cruella? And then she had to roll with the punches. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think she designed it for herself, and then had to think on the fly when it got taken away. It seems that way, right? Because the plan is so elaborate. You have Horace and Jasper do the fake break-in to the Baroness's design studio just so they can lock all these dresses in with the moths and have them in a confined space. So... You had to design that dress for the moths, but the moths might have been the afterthought. I wish they would have just fleshed that out a little bit more if it was brilliance the entire time or if she's that good at thinking on her feet. I got the feeling that it was just being good at thinking on her feet. But I want to talk about this scene because when they do pull it off, 
And you know something's up because it's Horace that makes the delivery. So you know something is off with these gold beads. And that is such a good plant for later on. For sure. That she recognizes, the Baroness will recognize Horace. Right. I love how they pull this off. And I love the elaborate scam that is send them running out to her launch party. It's spectacular. And not only is it her big debut in Regent's Park, she's wearing the quote-unquote Dalmatian coat. It is really the final knife in the Baroness's back. For sure. And she's out celebrating, and she's feeling great, and then the Baroness tells her, I'm going to... I'm going to kill you and frame these two for your murder. What did you think about this scene? Because we know the Baroness is crazy. But the Baroness, when she kills her mother, it's just her and the dogs and she's got the whistle, right? That's how she sicks the dogs on her. Now, she's got all of these bodyguards and all of these valets that are a part of this now. I thought that was a little uncharacteristic because it seemed like she had her finger on the pulse for the whole movie, but everything she did, she did behind everybody else's back to keep up this elaborate ruse. Right. Um, I think the difference is that she truly doesn't care anymore because she has power of her own. When it came to Estella's adoptive mother... Well, first of all, she wasn't even expecting her to show up, mm-hmm. but it was still close. To, you know, she's only got to be like, what, eight or nine there. So there's not yeah. that much of a passage of time where even though she wasn't expecting her past to come back and haunt her, um, it was still kind of fresh. And she was only just coming into her own because before she was just playing with her husband's money. Now she's got this whole empire and she's got power in her own right. So I think the difference is that because she is a public figure, she doesn't think anybody's going to necessarily turn on her. Perhaps. Question for you. Yeah. Obviously, you know, when we're in Regent's Park for that big debut of Cruella with the coat, there's very much... Did she or didn't she? Is this going to be the Cruella that we know? Oh, my God, did they really take it there? And once we get back to the apartment, we see Horace and Jasper tied up. And it is confirmed that the dogs are, in fact, okay. That Cruella was really not that cruel. Uh, And I think part of that is because they also still didn't have the necklace back at this point. Because this is the longest digestion we've ever seen. Um, But... The Baroness does, in fact, leave with her dogs at that point. Um, what did you think when they confirmed that Cruella is not, in fact, a puppy killer? I wasn't surprised, per se, because it's a, well, this is a stupid thing to say. It's a Disney movie, but so is 101 Dalmatians. Um... I think it's I, I, mean, I gotta be honest with you. I this is gonna sound horrible. I was a little disappointed. 
I was a little disappointed because this is okay. I'm I'm jumping to my big my okay. This is this is it. I'm jumping to my big question for the end of the movie. Ah, uh, sorry. Why? Why any of this then? What 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 happens between the end of this movie and 101 Dalmatians that turns her from the one that wouldn't turn the dogs into a coat into the one that does want to turn the dogs into a coat? And I understand we're getting a sequel. We shouldn't need a sequel to tell us what happens. That was the purpose of this movie. It is the origin story. I'll talk about whether I think we need a sequel or not later or whether I even want to see a sequel. But... Now we need a sequel to answer the biggest burning question you have in this movie. So while I'm not necessarily surprised that Disney didn't go there, it asks the question, why did you even make the movie then? Because she is she is going to be a puppy killer, right? We've and not just in one movie this is now three times because you had the original, you had the live action with Glenn Close, and then you had a sequel with Glenn Close. So three times you had no problem going for it. This is supposed to answer the question, why? And it doesn't answer the question, why? I think it's too dark is the answer. It's one thing to hear an animated woman who smokes a green cigarette say I'm going to kill puppies and turn them into coats it's entirely another to see a person say it for me I didn't think that we needed a sequel until we never got that question answered is connecting those dots we see her become unhinged no doubt about it from here on out but there still isn't the answer to how we got the animated Cruella that we know. I think that is what the sequel is going to be, though. It is going to be like that second act of Wicked, where, and it's what they tried and failed miserably to do with Maleficent 2. Maleficent was the origin story. Maleficent 2 was supposed to show us what was going on behind the scenes of Sleeping Beauty. So what I think they're going to do, because they led us right up to that point where Pongo and Perdita come in, I think this is our origin story and now we're going to, in the sequel, see what's going on from Cruella's POV as she's hunting these puppies down. And it's maybe not for the same reasons that we think. Maybe maybe the intention never was coats. I, I hope they don't cop out and do something like, I was trying to take the puppies and save them because there's this really other horrible designer that was really going to turn them into coats. Because she tells, you know, Horace and Jasper's two lines in the whole animation are, you pop them off and I'll do the skinning. So, like, this was going to happen. There has to be some sort of big reveal in this sequel. So I hope that they don't alter the source material too much. And if that's your intention... You shouldn't have even made this. That's my point. That's my point. I would agree, and I hate saying that because we've been praising this film so much so far. But let's keep let's keep going here. We've we've gotten ahead of ourselves. We have, but I think it was necessary in that moment to have that conversation. It's a defining moment. It's and a, I think yeah. that's it's important, though, for this story to this character, because Estelle is still in there somewhere. Well, 
she's put to rest, I think, for certain, like, for good for good, after the next scene. John rescues her. John shows her that the necklace is a key. It opens the lockbox. We find out that she is the Baroness's daughter. The Baroness had told John to kill the child because she didn't want to be a mother. But that's where it is, though. That is what you needed. It wasn't enough that the Baroness, you know, just cast her aside and dismissed her as some woman coming out of the woodwork to sh- to shake her down. It's not enough to find out that she killed the mother. It has to be something truly horrible. And now, aside from killing her mother, there's personal stake. She was going to have her killed, not once, but twice now. And... It also gives levity to why when John finds the eight or nine-year-old Estella at the party when her hat comes off and he sees her hair, his eyes bug out, and he immediately covers her head up. But it's so brilliantly done, though, because you just think he doesn't want all these rich fashion people to see the girl with the two-tone hair. Brilliant plan. So subtle, but so wonderful. And I mean, that's the thing. You have to see this movie a few times, really, to unpack all of this. Yeah. Because the movie is is layered so well. Um, And then you get a fake ending. You get what I think is a fake ending. Because she runs off to the fountain, and she starts speaking to the fountain, her mother. For the last time. For the last time. Before I get to how I feel felt Emma Stone played that scene would you have been okay if this is where the movie ended I thought this is where the movie was ending the first oh time we for saw sure it. I did too could I have lived with it maybe upon first viewing would I have felt that they were setting up a sequel yes definitely I didn't realize it the first time we watched it because you don't realize how much is left unresolved with Horace and Jasper being in jail, uh, that the Baroness is still out there. I thought they were going to leave it here, though. Just like, I'm wicked now, and I'm going to own it, and now I'm going to go off to do what you know that I do. And that's that would have answered how does she become the puppy killer because if she decided not to do the Dalmatian coat the first time around. Now she's got an even bigger issue with the Baroness and maybe that's what makes her go after them now. So for some storylines, it could have ended here. But regardless, I would have been left wanting more. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because Emma Stone plays this scene. Listen, she's She's great in the whole movie. She truly is. This scene to me is where she nails it the best. Other than the Nancy Sinatra scene. When she's sitting there talking to her mother and her hair's a mess and her makeup's a mess. And she's listing off all the things that she's like, you wanted me to be this. You wanted me to be this. But I'm really this and I'm bad. And she kind of like half winks and smirks and says, and maybe a little mad. And you can see, like, in that moment, she embraces how unhinged she truly is and how she can't always control it. It's the best scene 
in the movie, I think, for sure. I agree. I mean, we've talked about the defining moments where she embraces Cruella and she puts Estella back in the box, but this is where she just fully commits to there's no good left in me. Yeah. Like, she is... Okay, I think she's putting Cruella away... Sorry, she's putting Estella away. She's putting Estella in the background in every other scene. This is where Cruella takes over, though. Absolutely. Where she fully embraces it. This is where Cruella... It's no longer about... it's it's no longer about subduing Estella. It is about embracing Cruella. Well, I think she's always embraced her because, as she says, she gets things done. I think that she likes being able to have this take charge persona. This is like the let it go moment where you fully own who you are. It's not just about embracing it. It's... I am going to become this person. This is my identity now. Right. And then the movie continues. I love the jailbreak out. The jailbreak with Horace and Jasper is great. Where she backs the garbage truck into the police station. She sends Wink in. They break themselves out. And they make amends. And and it's a really nice scene where she introduces them to John as her family. Again, I think it was very important that we saw this. I am surprised, though, that it was enough to pull them back in just by telling telling them that the Baroness is her birth mother. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, having grown up together and, and even as kids, there's an early line in the movie where she says, my mother's dead. And I think Jasper says to Horace something yes. like, well, we know, you know, you know all about that or we know all about that or we forgot. You remember what that's like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think the fact that she exposes the truth to them, I think it kind of brings them back to that moment when they were kids because it seems like in that moment, basically everything is forgiven and forgotten. It's the angle. 110%. What did you think about the final scam? with this dress everybody like Cruella at the party thing. Brilliant. It was great. I loved it. Especially because it is sort of such an easy look to recreate with the black and white wigs. Uh, but it's it's just so genius to hijack the guest list, tell them that this is a tribute to Cruella so you cover your tracks there, but the reaction from the Baroness, you know, she thinks she's finally won, and now she's literally being haunted by Cruella's ghosts. Yeah, it's uh, it's so good. And, and, and when the guests arrive at this party and they're just getting tackled one after another after another. That's the genius of it, too is to hide her in plain sight. And then you've got Horace in the best part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it it should make you roll your eyes and be like, oh, this is so overdone. This is too much. It's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's so well done. It is. Let me. I want to ask you one more question before we wrap up the party because I did jump on something here. 
DeVille, how did you feel about how she found her last name? Oh, that was kind of lame buckets. So a lot of people said the same thing in Solo about how Han Solo became Han Solo because he was always just Han. He never had a last name because he was an orphan. So when he when they sent him off, they said, oh, so you're Han Solo because you're by yourself. And a lot of people didn't like that. So for, for when people didn't like that, I was like, you can't say you dislike that, but then you like how they pulled this off. Because basically, it's Horace. He sees a car. He goes, this car is called a devil. And Jasper goes, it's called DeVille. And she's like, I quite like that. And it's not even a car that they steal. She does steal several cars in this movie and hotwires them. And I like that they nod to her being a crazy driver. It's because she doesn't know how. Right. I like that they covered that one. Uh, if it had been a car that she stole, I'd be all about it. I think what would have been more effective in this case is if Anita wrote the headline, Who is this devil? Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um, I, th- I mean, it was okay. It was okay. Not great. Not horrible. It was, But it was okay. Yeah, it wasn't the aha moment that I had hoped for even, even taking the man off of Hellman hall and making it hell hall. I was like, okay, I like yeah, that. I like that. Yeah. But there wasn't a, you know, it, it wasn't like this big moment. Right. It should have been. So let's go now back to this party. Let's go to the end of the party because this is, this, this is essentially where the movie ends. She is back as Estella. She's got the red wig on. And she sets up her own murder for all intents and purposes. And she's got her guys are inside. The Baroness has no idea that these people are coming out here. And the Baroness fakes enthusiasm, fakes wanting to hug her so that she can push her off the cliff. How did you feel about the setup? How did you feel about how she escaped her own doom? Um, what I really like is that they figured out a way to take the Baroness down without killing her. Because again, if you didn't make the Dalmatian coat, you don't have the killer instinct as the Baroness hinted at before. So it shows that there maybe is a shred of humanity left in you. Not a shred of good, but we're still not fully there yet she's mad she's unhinged nothing is going to stop Cruella from getting her revenge but she's still not a killer uh so I'm all for that uh I like that not only does the Baroness get her comeuppance it's a very public display and that's part of taking her down is that it's not enough to just take her down she has to be publicly humiliated as well so I like that they really went for it Um, as far as Estella, well, really, it's not faking her own death. Cruella kills Estella here because this is, you know, for as much as she does own Cruella at that scene at the fountain, that's really symbolically killing Estella. Now she almost sort of physically does it. Uh... Or at least makes it seem that way. At first I did think this was a little far-fetched. But 
they do cover the tracks when they say that before she died, uh, Estella transferred the fortune to Cruella. So you really did have to kill Estella off. Otherwise, what's to stop the Baroness from coming back? Well, and this is the thing, right? Like, I thought the skirt turning into a parachute, um, at f- the first time I saw it, I was like, eh, all right, I guess. But, I mean, how else is she going to escape this? I love the whole angle that that she does it publicly and that she does have this last will and testament where she does will everything to Corella DeVille. The brilliance of how this movie ends is that the voiceover is her giving herself her own eulogy. Yes. It's because it, it's Estella's funeral. They bury an empty casket and she goes and she's with her mother now. She is now completely it's like Estella's run her course. It's Cruella's time. I love that this is a two hour and 15 minute eulogy to herself. It was so well done. Well, I think that's also why going over the cliff is so symbolic, too, because that's the thing that she feared. It's how her mother went out. So now that she it's like you said, with uh, the Regent's Park Fountain, she empowered it. A hundred and ten percent. And what I love most of all is that she kept her chosen family together, not just Horace and Jasper, but she's got Artie at Hell Hall now, too. And I'm. Excited to see where that goes. Yeah, for sure. All right, now we have a mid credit scene. And this just kind of leads you to ask more questions. And if you have listened to this whole episode to this point without watching the movie, you can't say we didn't warn you about spoilers. You get Pongo and Perdita. They are introduced because Cruella gifts them as puppies. Genghis's babies. To Anita... And Roger. And so then Roger goes upstairs to his piano after he has just been gifted a puppy, mind you, and writes this horrible song about Cruella DeVille, who he personally has had very little interaction with, has not necessarily been his adversary, and then gifted him a puppy. He doesn't know. I just realized he do- he doesn't know that it's Estella. So why is he writing this song about her then? Right, because she does sign it Cruella. Anita knows. Anita knows both identities. This is unless where... wait, wait, wait. Who signed over everything? When they transferred the will from Estella to Cruella, you need a lawyer. So maybe he does. I didn't think it was him. I'd have to go back and watch that scene again. I didn't think it was him. Well, no, but that answers everything then. If it's him, then he knows that she killed her former identity and now this is who she is. And maybe that's why he is singing about it because he knows how evil she is. But it also, to me at that point, I think it still hurts 101 Dalmatians. I still, I will die on the hill that, or or off the cliff in this case, (laughs) that... It was a much he was a much funnier character when he had no previous interactions with Cruella Deville. I would agree with that. And I go back and forth. Did we need this? Not necessarily, because you know in that last scene, and it's for an otherwise incredible movie, it's so clunky when Horace is like, Did Genghis put on weight? Obviously. 
that dog is pregnant. Right. No two ways about it. And that's where you could have set up like, okay, we can assume that Pongo and Perdita are going to be a part of this litter when this dog gives birth. Um, And then how do they end up with Roger and Anita? Did we need to see that? For the sake of 101 Dalmatians, no. If we're just solely focusing on this film, I think I would have been left wanting it if it wasn't included. Okay. Let's start talking about the cast and the characters, starting with Emma Stone. The amazing Emmas, both of them. My God. Both of them. I mean, look, Emma Stone nails it. She's so perfect. Every line, the laugh, she nails. Anita Darling, she nails. Everything about her is perfection. I mean, look, Angelina Jolie is the only actress that they could have cast as Maleficent. And I thought she did a spectacular job. I would say that as good as she was, I think Emma Stone was even better as Cruella DeVille. I would certainly agree with that. I can't think of anybody else who who could have done this role. I really can't. Emma Stone just completely knocked it out of the park. Uh, not just embracing this mad character. She got both. She she nailed Estella as the mousy. I don't know if that's necessarily the right word because she's always been very calculated and she's always known what she was going to do. But when she is starting up with the Baroness, I think you could argue that she's a little mousy. She nailed that as much as she nailed the evil. And I mean, that's the mark of a truly great actress because you really are playing two roles in one and you made them enough similar enough where you believe it's the same person and different enough where you can clearly see the conflict between this good and evil side and and the struggle of which one is going to break through what i love too is that emma stone does have executive producer credit i remember when she rallied for the script to get done so this has been hers all along for sure Emma Thompson, I said it before, she's perfection, she is brilliance, she is so good in this film. And I, I've seen her do comedies, I've seen her do dramas, but I kind of think I like her more as the villain. I would agree with that. I think Curmudgeon P.L. Travers is still my favorite role, though, but this is... <sighs> By a hair, a close second. Because she's just yeah. so good. They're so different, though. Because you have a curmudgeon versus an egomaniac or a narcissist. Yeah. She plays them so differently. But you know what it is? She could have played them the same, and she doesn't. Right. But she nails both. She completely nails both. Joel Fry plays Jasper. I really think, I said it before, the depth that he gives this character it's it's a credit to the actor and the screenwriting, but the depth they give this character here make him more than just like the bumbling sidekick. I haven't seen 
anything. He's been in a lot of movies, but I haven't really seen anything with him. And I'm surprised this was his first. Oh, no. Game of Thrones. That's why. We haven't watched Game haven't of Thrones. Watched it. Uh, I was going to say I'm surprised he's not in more blockbuster things, but that that's okay. That makes all the sense in the world now. Um, he was a scene stealer for me. Uh, just the way that he emoted. We didn't really talk about the scene uh, before Cruella's final takedown of the Baroness. They have that little conversation out on the balcony uh, where he just sort of levels with her. And I, I kind of feel like that's at the point where he comes to terms with if you love something, let it go. Cause he realizes he's never going to be able to be with Estella the way that he wants to. Um, but most of that is done in his eyes and not through any kind of dialogue. And that's just an amazing performance. Paul Walter Hauser plays Horace. He's such good comic relief. Yes. I think that he nails the character. I love the relationship he has in equal measure with Jasper, but also with Estella Cruella. He just brings so much lightheartedness to what is otherwise such a dark movie. But similarly, he's not falling over himself. He's not a bumbling sidekick. He's not a clown. He's not a fool. He is smart, and he is calculated, and he is thinking three steps ahead. And I just really like the life that he gave the character. I love that they made him the comic relief without making him stupid. And I think out of all the relationships that you mentioned, my favorite is his with Wink. For sure. John McCree plays Artie. I love Artie. I, to echo what you said before, am curious to see where they go with him because obviously he's not in 101 Dalmatians. So I'm very curious to see what happens to him in the second film, but love his style, love his attitude, love his dry sense of humor. He was just perfect casting. Yeah, I love that he's rooting for her. Um, he's the missing piece that we never knew that we needed. So sure. I hope he has an even bigger role next time around. Mark Strong plays John. You know, he doesn't have a lot of scenes that are, like, focused on him. But any scene that he's in, especially after you see the movie a few times, every scene that he's in, he becomes a stronger character and stronger character because you know how he is pivoting himself to the moment where he has to rescue her because he knows in the back of his mind... It's her. He knows the whole time she's coming back. Well, he knew that he didn't kill her, obviously. Right. And right. that's, it's so interesting to watch once you know exactly what his role is and everything. I mean, he is such an important character. But when you really analyze his scenes, you see more how he's covering his own tracks, but also trying to still help Estella escape. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kirby Howell Baptiste plays Anita. I like what they did with the character here. I love the relationship that she had with Estella slash Cruella. I said it before and I'll say it again. It answers an awful lot of questions. And I love her style. Yes. I love how like I love how they really went 
I mean, of course, the movie takes place in the 70s, but they went heavy on her with the 70s garb. Right, because she wasn't punk rock the way that Cruella is, but they still gave her such an iconic 70s style. Yeah, I, I love everything that they did with Anita. Kaven Novak plays Roger. It's nothing against him, but tripping and falling into every scene, I'm not going to hash out again that I don't think it worked having him in this film, having a previous relationship with Cruella in any facet, whether he knew it was her or not, he gets gifted the dog. There's, it's just not working for me. And, and I, I don't think it's, it's not the actor's fault. I think it was the way that he was written. Yeah, I, I disagree. I like having him in the movie, but I said before, I think he could have played a bigger role and certainly not, like you said, is dumbed down, falling all over himself. Before we give our final, our final review here. The soundtrack. Well, I want to talk about that too. All right, let's talk. No, put a pin in that. I am not a fan. Wasn't then, aren't now, of the 101 Dalmatians live action film with Glenn Close. And Jeff Daniels doesn't do it for me. Who, if you go cast by cast, would you recast that that original live action film with these actors? I would do it with everybody but Roger, but that's only because of how they wrote Roger in in the live action remake with Jeff Daniels. Otherwise, I would take this cast over that cast in a heartbeat. I would agree. Um, I did like Glenn Close, though, but in the role of trying to make it a comedy, that's not what they're doing here. It was funny when it needed to be, but this was never meant to be a comedy. That was. That was supposed to be a direct adaptation of 101 Dalmatians. I don't think it was ever meant to soften the character, but you had to keep it funny because she was still a puppy killer. I think, though, because they're doing a sequel, I don't think that live-action remake is going to be canon. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I think the, the difference is, in this movie, Cruella de Vil is unhinged. And I think, if I remember correctly... My criticism of Glenn Close's portrayal, she was just manic. She was and just like way too manic and eccentric. The laugh. You also, I think that was it. <laughs> it, just didn't, it didn't, it, I didn't like it in the mid 90s. I don't like it now. No, it bothered you. And that, that was like the only thing that made her villainous was the maniacal laugh. Speaking of the maniacal laugh, they did plant the Easter egg when... Estella is watching uh, the television in the hotel room. Uh, it is the actress who voiced Cruella on screen. So I love that they did that. Now let's talk about one of the best soundtracks that has come out of any Disney film. Every song slaps. Every single one. They all work in their respective scenes. They're all iconic songs. They give so much to... They, they just lend themselves so well to the period, to the sets, to the just like the general attitude. To the character. Everything. It 
I love that you use the word attitude. The music is sort of a character in and of itself. Yeah, it completely works. It, it just it takes the movie over the top. Okay, final thoughts. I'll go first. The more I said this when we did Monoreal in a minute. The more I watch this movie, the more I like this movie. I think the cast is incredible. I think the sets are great. I think the costumes are awesome. I think that... I think it is... Um, I think it's... Uh, where do I... How do I want to... Okay, so if in all of, all of the quote-unquote live-action movies, it is one of the better ones. But putting it in the subcategory of origin story... I kind of go back and forth on what is better, this or Maleficent. I'm still drawn to saying Maleficent is the better because I didn't walk out of Maleficent asking more questions than I had before I watched it. I'm asking more questions, and I'm not rehashing them again. And I stand by the fact that I don't think we should have had to have this and then a sequel to Get to 101 Dalmatians. You do an origin story to answer the question, to show us what's going on behind the scenes. Not two, one. And if you weren't going to make that movie, you shouldn't have made this movie to begin with. But it's fun as hell. The cast is incredible. Do we need a sequel? Uh, Unfortunately, the answer is yes. And it's not that I don't want to see Emma Stone in this role again. It's not that I don't want to see this cast again. I do. I felt like they made this to make the sequel. And I don't like when movies make movies to make a sequel. So I kind of feel like that's what they were doing here. I I really enjoy this movie a lot. I truly, truly do. That's my biggest problem with it, though. And it's going to be an unpopular opinion, I'm, I'm sure of that. But I don't want people to be confused with Sean didn't like the movie. I liked it, but it just leaves too many questions. I hear you, but take that away from it. Forget all the other questions. Just look at this movie. Forget about the character that we know. Forget about 101 Dalmatians. Just looking at this movie. Do you still feel that way? If you well, it's impo- that that's that's a that's an impossible question to answer though. I'm watching a movie about Cruella Deville. I'm watching an origin story about Cruella Deville. How can I take 101 Dalmatians out of it? If I take 101 Dalmatians out of it, I go. This is a cool movie about this character that exists for what reason I don't know, but it's fun. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but the minute that you put in, it's an origin story about this evil for evil sake villain. It's not, it's not as good if you have to consider 101 Dalmatians, which in some ways makes it a failure as an origin story. Oof. If I need to take 101 Dalmatians out of the equation to not have my burning questions bother me, then then this movie doesn't work. I get what you're saying. This is spiraling into places that I never thought it was going to. I'm not even sure what to respond to first. Um, well, you were the one that asked the question. 
<laughs> In independent of your final synopsis, I'm just going to give mine not as a rebuttal because I truly love this movie. I love the characters. I love the character development. I love, like you said, the sets, the costumes, which we didn't for a fashion movie spend even nearly enough time talking about. They were all just incredible. I love the music. And I do really love it as an origin story. I think this blows Maleficent out of the freaking water. Um, forget even the fact that I said, oh my gosh, Maleficent was about a boy. Um, maybe it's just because this one gave me all of the wicked feels that I love it so much. I don't mind that we were being set up for a sequel this entire time. And really, that is what they did with Maleficent. The first one was the origin story. The second one was Sleeping Beauty from her POV. I hope that's what we get here. I hope that we are proven wrong that Cruella is not, in fact, a puppy killer. But like I said, I hope it's not a stupid reason. Because I don't know that I want to see them, like, really, really go for it. I don't, do I think they're going to show anything? No, God. But... I want Cruella to be a misunderstood villain. I want her to not kill puppies. I want to be proven wrong. And I hope that they have some brilliant way of bringing that about without the way that you feel ruining 101 Dalmatians. I understand where you feel that there were questions left unanswered here. Because I left the theater with a million questions, but I liked that my brain was racing because my biggest question was, how are we going to connect this, these dots? I do believe that they're going to do it. I do believe that they are going to figure out a clever way because this was just so darn good. And I love it more and more every single time that I watch it. This is a near perfect one for me, actually. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that, wow. Um, and I just, I want more. Give me Ursula. Give me Jafar. Scar, I don't know about. Definitely give me Hook. You know what? I just don't, I don't want her to be the misunderstood villain. I want her to be a villain. I'm tired of this, like, notion that we have to clean up the mess or that I don't need to see Michael Myers as a child. You know I'll what give I'm you saying? that. Like, I, I will I'm, give you I'm that. I'm kind of like, I don't need to see, I don't need to see why Freddy Krueger was misunderstood and now is seeking out revenge on the parents that killed him, and it wasn't justified. Like, what they've tried to do with horror movies, just stop. It doesn't work. I don't want her to be misunderstood. I want her to be Cruella DeVille. That's why I wanted to see this movie, because I wanted to see Cruella DeVille. I don't want to see the, well, you don't really understand what happened. No, I, I, I want to see what made her that way. Oh, I have a theory. Okay. Because Artie's a new character. He's not in 101 Dalmatians. What if something happens to Artie and now she flips because something happened to him? Well, I'm thinking something's got to happen to him and John. I was kind yeah. of thinking that last night when I was wondering like what they could do. But it's got to be something extreme. And I guess Artie would be extreme. Well, so would so John, John because he saved her life. But yeah, but you know what? That Then it begs the question. Now we're really spiraling. If, if a Dalmatian killed her mother and she still doesn't hate Dalmatians, why is she going to hate a Dalmatian for killing John and Artie? I'm not saying a Dalmatian killed John and Artie, but I'm saying that that's maybe what triggers her from being a dog lover to a dog hater. Because that's like, I love that 
Wink made it all the way to the end. Buddy did, who's been with her since childhood, because, my God, I was afraid that he wasn't going to be with us at the end of the movie, just from age. But I, I don't know. It's got to be something extreme, and it can't be Jasper and Horace. It can't be Disney. No, it literally can't be. Well, I mean, at any rate, we're getting a sequel. It's going to answer our questions, I hope. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say about Cruella. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly check for discounts to make sure we are guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was Perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me at j.zolezi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you are looking for that Disney-inspired art print, perhaps some stationary greeting cards, apparel, or home decor, Kelly has what you are looking for. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she has to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. All right, so the Emmys. This is a hot-button topic right now. All right, so last week we had reported that at the time of that recording, WandaVision had won three Emmys. And it did. It won three Creative Arts Emmys. Then came Sunday night's primetime Emmys. Remember, it had 23 nominations. It didn't win a single thing. I mean, I had posted this because I shared the article on our Facebook page. Uh... We didn't love the ending of WandaVision, but that was one episode. I don't think it deserved to get snubbed like that. I don't think Paul Bettany or Elizabeth Olsen deserved it. I thought they were spectacular. I thought Katherine Hahn was good. I mean, listen, it was, a go- it was a good show that should have been a great show, and it wasn't a great show because they didn't finish it. And Feige admitted it. Mm-hmm. They didn't finish that show, not the way they wanted to. We waited long enough. We could have waited a little bit longer and could have gotten the ending and the tie-in that we were supposed to get, and we didn't. So that's not to say that you should have punished the show, you know, in 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 its entirety. But, I mean, am I surprised it got snubbed? I'm surprised it got snubbed. 
I'm surprised it didn't win a single thing. I mean, there was enough good going on. Forget the end. Listen, Game of... I have never seen... We talked about it before. Never seen Game of Thrones. My understanding is that ending sucked, and that would clean up at awards time. Dexter, that ending sucked. That would clean up. Breaking Bad, that ending sucked. That would clean up. You you can't take a, a you know a crappy end to a show and negate all of the good that it does when it comes to awards time. Right, but just like logistically basic math, you're casting the net so wide with 23 nominations, you think they'd get one or two at least. And I think even one or two people would have been disappointed. How do you win one or two? Right, like how are you so widely acknowledged that it's 23 nominations, but you don't win? And I'm not saying it was going to sweep with 23 awards, but I just thought it was going to get a little bit more acknowledgement than it did I kinda, and it deserved it i kind of thought in my mind eight to ten i thought it could win eight to ten mm. but it doesn't win a thing that was a big shock no and i mean am i saying that elizabeth olsen is the best actress no but i think that she and, and i'm not even sure honestly because i have not watched the award ceremony yet i have to do that um i'm not even sure who she was up against but just thinking to her performance and the way that she was able to nail every single decade of television in each genre. She was just so good. She was spectacular. They she both she had a strong chance at winning. Every That whole cast was yeah. really good. The cast was good. The costumes were good. The special effects were good. The music was great. It, it uh, Don't even get me started. Like I, I didn't like how it ended, but I really enjoyed that show at least up until the last episode, and I'm just surprised that it got snubbed across the board. Disney Plus Day. You know, I'm getting so excited every year that we get Disney Plus Day. March, or sorry, March, hello. November 12th, Disney Plus Day. I love how they're treating this like Investor's Day. There's like a lot of announcements, and they're still being kind of ambiguous. But we're getting a lot. Yes. We're getting a lot. So far, the list of releases for... Disney Plus Day on November 12th. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Jungle Cruise. Home Sweet Home Alone. I forgot about that one. Disney's Olaf Presents. Disney and Pixar's Ciao Alberto. New short from The Simpsons is coming. Season 2 of The World According to Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Finally coming. We're also getting a Star Wars special look and a Marvel special look. I don't know what that is just yet. I guess it's a preview, but we know that we've got a lot coming down the pike with both of those franchises. I have to imagine it's going to be a Hawkeye tease. Wow, that's a big week because it's a big de- week Dexter, a day. Dexter comes back oh, yeah. on November 8th. And we're going to be in Disney, and that's our anniversary, so we're going to have a lot of catching up to do when we get back. Yeah, and November 12th is the day that they are debuting Coco at Film Mahar Magic at the Magic Kingdom. Yes! They had released it at Disneyland's Film Mahar Magic, but that is when the Magic Kingdom in Orlando is getting it. Is that the day that we're going to be there? I think I so. I think so. I think so. We we may have to fast pass Film Mahar Magic, or Lightning Lane Film Mahar Magic. <sighs> no! Not for a 3D ride that lets in like hundreds of people at a time. Absolutely not. Depends on how many people want to see Coco. I'm not going to buy into this. Maybe for Rise of the Resistance because we haven't been on it yet. Maybe. 
but I am not going to buy into Chapik's reign of terror. Well, you know where we are going to have to wait online if we decide to go, and I don't know that we're going to this time. I think it's going to have to wait. Space 220. That was a mob scene yesterday. Oh, my God. So Lou Mangello was there, and John Sicari was there. They both had videos that go up. And I watched Lou's video. The place looks insane. Like, it just looks so impressive. And the food. The the menu itself, the food, looks awesome. It's, I mean, listen, it's it's kind of expensive. For a park, I think it's kind of expensive. I mean, you're talking, like, the average glass of wine was, like, 17 or 18 bucks. Like, wow. like rosés from Provence were $19, where usually you get them for, like, 10 or $12 everywhere else. I know there's always a little bit of an upcharge at Disney, but I'd be honest with you, for what you are paying for, I I would pay that price because I think it's worth it. Well, I think it's kind of like Hoop-de-Doo, right? Where, I mean, you're not getting a full performance like the Hoop-de-Doo review, but I think part of it is because it's going to be like dinner theater. But the, I mean, the plates that they brought out just looked insane. Like everything is so beautifully presented. This, I think, is going to be one of like the most popular Disney dining locations in the short term absolutely but just the way that they're plating the food and the options that they have and they're very different from a lot of the other dining options I can see this long term being a very tough reservation to get probably but I'm excited to eventually try it we want to know if you've tried it have you gone to the soft open did you wait on the line? Was it worth it? How do you feel about Disney Plus Day releases? How do you feel about WandaVision getting snubbed? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. One more thing to take care of. We do have a contest winner. We had a really, really great prize pack going out this week that consisted of a monorail radio t-shirt, a grim grinning ghost straw charm from the Hidden Mickey Supply Co., a Luca Funko, and a Luca color changing mug. Thank you to everybody that entered. We are happy to announce that Courtney Goings has won the prize pack. So Courtney, we will reach out to you to get your shipping information and we will get your prize pack out to you. If you did not win this prize pack, just make sure that you keep an eye on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio, because I'm looking at the pile of prizes that we have right now. I've been stocking up. We have some really good stuff that we have already have piling up here. Plus, we are going to Disney. We just mentioned it in November, and you know that we love to go shopping for you when we go down to Disney World or when we go out to Disneyland and it's Disney 50. I don't have to remind you of that so you can be sure that we are coming back with something really cool. So make sure you are keeping an eye on that social media. If you didn't win this contest, don't fret. We have plenty more coming. Thank you so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I already told you all the social media. I already gave you the email address. Make sure that you uh, like us and subscribe and leave us a rating on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links to all of the social media, plus the podcast links and the email address, it's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. (laughs) 
On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.